Chatua Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this week's podcast, junior Welsh tarmac rally champion Jade Paveley shares her story and tells us all about rallying an F-type. JECpodcast.com Hello and welcome to another Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott with you. I hope you're keeping well. I hope you had a lovely Easter. And welcome along as we approach the one year's anniversary of this podcast. Amazing. Can't believe I've been sat in this same room talking into this same microphone for a whole year. I've barely moved. But it's been good to have you along with us. And keep your messages coming in, by the way. It's lovely to hear from you. And lovely to hear from people in the Jaguar world across the globe as well. And one such person is Kurt Usbey, who contacted us right the way from New York, in fact, with pictures of his superb-looking Lynx D-Type. He's a member of the North America Jaguar Club, as well as the JEC, and he's got a stunning car. And we're going to interview him and find out more about that car in a future episode that we'll share with you over the next couple of weeks. So looking forward to that. Also, more messages through the contact form at jecpodcast.co.uk. This one from Alex Goring, who says, I love Jags. I love the mag. I'm 36, and my dad is an avid Jag collector and restorer. In short, I came back from hospital in a Mark II. And he says he'd love to continue the passion that his dad had imbued upon him over the last 15 years. Well, Alex, good to have you along and good to have you listening to the podcast and enjoying the magazine, of course, that you get all part of your membership to the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. If you're not yet a member, by the way, do please come and join us. You're more than welcome. The website to go to to join up is jc.org.uk or via the podcast homepage there. You can click join the club and it will take you through all the steps you need to join the club, join the family, and ensure that you get that fantastic monthly magazine sent to you as well. Don't forget, of course, this is the podcast where you can win yourself a Jaguar XK, a 5-litre V8 one at that. And it's all possible by simply going to jc.org.uk forward slash raffle and buying yourself a raffle ticket for just £2. Now, I have to draw your attention to the fact that a new draw date has been announced. Ongoing pandemic difficulties, of course, have meant that uh, we reported on it here that the Summer Jaguar Festival at Blenheim Palace has had to be moved to the 4th of July, a one-day event at Bicester Heritage. Now, you can get your tickets for that via jc.org.uk forward slash festival. But because it's a one-day event and also because of the lack of events that we've had to sell raffle tickets and the fact that we want to get as much money together for the charity as we possibly can, the new draw date for winning this car has been moved to the end of the year to November and the NEC Classic Motor Show. Now, this is traditionally where we would normally do our annual draw for the raffle car. So there's nothing unusual in that. It's just a couple of years down the line since we started selling tickets for this particular car. But it will be on the 14th of November 2021 at the NEC Classic Motor Show at 4pm on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club show stand. Now, all the tickets that have been bought up until this point are all still valid for that draw and will be entered into that draw. And you don't have to be present at the show to win the car. We'll call you. Don't you worry. There's no getting out of it. We'll ring you on the day and tell you the good news if it happens to be you. The main thing is, though, to get your tickets. 
make sure that we support this fantastic charity, the Haemophilia Society, that do so much for people with blood disorders here in the UK. Tickets are just £2, and you could be winning a 2014 model Jaguar XK Signature Special Edition Italian Racing Red with ivory leather, and you can get your raffle tickets now via jec.org.uk forward slash raffle and all the proceeds go to the haemophilia society here in the uk a fantastic interview on the way on this episode really looking forward to talking to jade pavely and sharing her story with you and finding out what it's like to rally a jaguar f type amazing we'll talk to her in just a moment after richard west and his hall of fame next motorsport heroes with richard west's hall of fame well, there are some iconic race cars throughout motorsports history. And of course, with an iconic racing car goes an iconic racing car designer. And one of them is inducted into our Hall of Fame this week. Which one is it, Richard? It's none other than JB, John Barnard, a man who I've been very privileged to work alongside in Formula One and also have travelled with uh, across China looking at technical projects in more recent years. Uh, an absolutely incredible guy, born uh, back in May, May the 4th, 1946, a Londoner. Uh, John, uh, would either strike fear into the heart of you if you were meeting him on the wrong day or endear you immensely, but above it all, one of the most talented designers the world of motorsport has probably ever seen, but quite hard to work with and to, and I, when I say manage, I don't mean try and control because that would be impossible, um, but he quite hard to manage in the sense that John is very volatile or was, he's calmed down a lot now, but in his, in his glory is he was a very volatile person and everything, and I mean everything, had to be perfect. And if it wasn't, boy, oh boy, you know, stay out of the way because it could be an exciting ride. <laughs> Well, some iconic cars that he designed, though, and for some iconic drivers. And mm. he started at Lola, sadly, at the long dead Lola from Huntingdon, just down the mm. road from where I live. But um, mm. he, I think, I, I guess, his main success came after a chance meeting at Lola with Patrick Head and the and likes of Frank Williams and others, and eventually ended up at McLaren, didn't he? He did, yes. I mean, actually, he, he, he going right back, he um, gained a diploma from Watford College of Technology in the 60s. And um, he started uh, his career out by joining the General Electric Company uh, in those early days. But you're right, in 68, um, he was recruited by Lola in Huntingdon. And um, he went to a number of races, worked on a number of projects, Formula V, sports cars. But his friendship with Patrick Head and, of course, that legendary partnership between um, both sirs, Sir Patrick Head and Sir Frank Williams, around the Formula One team, they became such good mates, irrespective of the fact they were on competing sides you know, of the grid, that Patrick was actually best man at John's wedding in the early 70s. Um, seven, in 72, John went to McLaren for a short stay. He, he worked alongside Gordon Coppock, another legendary designer, working alongside the M23 McLaren, which, of course, James Hunt and others drove during that uh, period. And also he started to work on McLaren's IndyCar programs. Um, it was mid-70s, I think, when he went to the Parnelli-Jones team to, to work alongside Maurice Philippe, another um, excellent designer, um, which was campaigned out there in the mid-60s. The best they ever had with that car was a, was a fourth place from Marianne Dressy, and also that was that was at the 75 Swedish Grand Prix when they designed a, a car for Formula One, the Parnelli 
VPJ4, as it was known. But once things split and broke away, as they do frequently with these, within these teams, John decided to really get his head down on the IndyCar project. And in 1980, uh, he designed this incredible Chaparral 2K Grand Effect car, uh, which took Johnny Rutherford to the uh, 500, Indy 500, and the car championship driver's title at that time. So literally by the start of the 80s, John was already highly accomplished with a very successful track record. He had a big impact on Formula One design through safety that you can still see Mm. to this day. And that actual uh, innovation really saved the life of John Watson during a testing session at Monza in the early 80s, didn't it? Yeah, it it did, because um, he met Ron, well, obviously he knew Ron, but uh, Ron approached him in the early 80 period and suggested that he join McLaren as technical director as one of the new directors and shareholders with Bob Illman and Crichton Brown, the other two who the, the recently departed John Hogan from Philip Morris assisted putting the deal together. And it was the composite car you're talking about. Um, the chassis, the Lotus 88, was was well advanced using composite materials, but John felt very strongly that rather than composite panels, it should be an all-complete, one-encompassing structure, which it was. And he brought with him Steve Nichols, the American who had been working alongside Hercules Aerospace in the US, who, who provided carbon composite for a lot of space shuttle components at the time. And working very carefully with Hercules, they built this fantastic carbon composite monocoque, which, of course, John Watson had the most monumental accident in. And literally, it split the car in two. I can still see the accident as we're talking about it with the monocoque laying at the side of the track, you know, with the rear end, the engine and the gearbox spinning off down the arm. And if ever you wanted the ultimate road test, that was it. And that really was the proving ground that led to everybody using carbon composites that we're so familiar with in motor racing today. Well, he was responsible for what I call the, I suppose we can say it on a podcast, the Marlborough red and white liveried (laughs) uh, McLaren era. Um, Of course, uh, cigarette sponsorship long gone, but it was the thing that really signposted those McLaren cars during that era. But eventually that relationship, despite the fact that he had such success with those cars and obviously such innovations that uh, included saving John Watson's life, as we just described, he ended up at Ferrari after a bit of a falling out with Ron Dennis, didn't he? Yeah, there was a parting of the ways. We've talked a lot about Ron in the past. And I mean, you know, this remarkable character in Ron Dennis, who who always had this phenomenal vision, uh, as we all saw, you know, from the final building of the Norman Foster Design Technical Centre at Woking, McLaren Technical Centre. And... John, on occasions, I believe, and I know because we we were close at that time, he felt that he wasn't getting the the recognition he deserved for his technical contributions. And of course, because he was producing cars that were winning regularly in championships with Nicky Lauder, Alan Prost, etc., etc., really towards the end of 86 things began to sour and John decided to go and uh, it was then that Ferrari came in John was in great demand Ferrari had approached him but (laughs) typical John he said yeah I'll I'll work for Ferrari Mr Enzo of course I will you know it'd be a great pleasure but I'm not going to come and work in Italy you're going to have to build a a technical centre in Guildford and um, that was what happened on the outskirts of Guildford the Ferrari technical office was set up which, which John contributed and built an enormous amount of success and developed some amazing things such as the paddle shift gearbox that helped Ferrari back to a competitive position. 
How do you think he sits amongst some of the great Formula One car designers of all time? You know, the likes of Ross Braun, Adrian Newey. Oh, he's right up there, isn't he? You know, alongside those you've mentioned, other guys like Neil Oatley, Gordon Murray. The, these guys are something special because where they produce these race-winning formulas from, they start with concepts in their head, they get them down on paper or nowadays on screens, and they leave no stone unturned. They're immensely innovative. John drove Porsche mad in those early days at McLaren with the Porsche Tag Turbo TTE engine, PO1 engine, because he wanted the turbochargers pushed out to the side, not not low, low down, because he'd already designed the aerodynamic shape of the underside of the car. And he wanted the turbochargers to fit perfectly within the side pods. And it's that type of mentality that makes these people so special. And again, you know, when you look back at the iconic Ferrari 641, you look back at the semi-automatic gearbox, all the things that he's achieved, John is absolutely right up there with the best of the very best. And he created one of the best of the very best in that he designed the car that really took Michael Schumacher to the next level of success, didn't he? Well, he did. He was heavily involved in that Benetton, um, that, that, that early Benetton revolution, if you want to call it that, when Ross Braun, Tom Walkinshaw in those early days, Flavio Briatore, they all came together. And of course, in those early days, there were enormous inputs. But John's, John's a big character. I mean that in the nicest possible way because of his reputation and his beliefs. And I think that the the, the dominating pre- presence of Flavio and Ross and, and an emerging Michael just proved too much. And, uh, you know, John went off down the road and did different things. But yeah, he's had an incredible career and uh, has also in later life worked on things such as prosthetic carbon composite limbs. And he's also been involved in uh, futuristic furniture designs and a range of other things. And of course, he's ended up writing his own book as well recently, um, which is a fascinating look into John's life um, called The Perfect Car. And I think that sums him up completely. Amazing. What a career from designing light bulbs to some of the most iconic Formula One cars of all time mm. and now prosthetic limbs. Amazing. Uh, great inductee into the Hall of Fame here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. To find out what events you can get along to or to discover local club meets in your region, visit jec.org.uk. Now, Jaguar in modern times are perhaps not a brand that you would naturally associate with rallying, but in its past, they certainly were with some great successes that stretch way back to the 1930s with the SS100 taking on things like the Monte Carlo and Alpine rallies. Probably the most famous of the rally cars from Jaguar's history is, of course, Nub 120, the XK120, driven by Ian Appleyard with Sir William Lyons' daughter Patricia navigating. The pair won the Coupe des Alpes in 1950 and later added the RAC Rally and the Tulip Rally to their victory list. It was a rugged car, the XK120, so when Jaguar decided to commemorate the achievement by preparing a rally version of the modern F-Type, we were all intrigued as to how it would perform. Well, the person to tell us all about it is my guest on this week's podcast, Junior Welsh Tarmac Rally Champion, Jade Pavley. Jade, welcome to the podcast. Hello, thank you very much for having me, Wayne. It's great to have you on. First of all, how's lockdown been? Lockdown's been weird, but I think it has been weird for everybody. But I think it's just re 
aligned my perspective on so many things. Obviously, I've not been able to compete in motorsport, so it's made me stop and evaluate. And I think going forward, that will hopefully put me in better stead. I think before lockdown, life was just so manic. It was like one event after the next. It was the family business. It was motorsport, me trying to push my career and then trying to like fit a normal life as well. It's just, I think it was just so hectic. So to have that kind of stop and breather, this made me think, right, what's important? What do I actually want to do going forward? So although it's been really tough and especially for businesses um, and for people at home, but it's, um, there's a small silver lining with that, I think. Is that what you do sort of day to day when you're not out racing then? You, you're you working for the family business and that's a Honda dealership, right? It is, if I'm allowed to say Honda on here. Of yes. Course, of course. <laughs> so my dad's got a Honda dealership in Sladidno in North Wales. Um, we've had that for nearly 10 years now. Um, and I've been predominantly on service and then sales. And then when we went into lockdown in March, I came off sales to do all the social media marketing from home. Um, so yeah, it's a family dealership. And then we've also got a motorsport business, which is now evolving to a Lotus service point, an official Lotus service point, and also a bar and stage in the same venue. Uh, so that's nice. going to be really interesting. The yeah. sport lounge, I can't wait because uh, we're the passion alongside motorsports music. So that's a nice little thing to have too. So yeah, busy, busy. I'm a, my partner's got a rally school as well in Mid Wales, Forest Experience. So always busy. You do work in the motor industry day to day and then sort of race at weekends but both are part of your career and a lot of our sort of older motor racing veterans would recognize that as the way most people started in the sport yeah completely yeah it's yeah you're quite right i think one of the reasons that i'm able to go rallying is because of the the family business you know it's a great marketing tool and it's it really puts our brand out there and obviously i stand out a little bit um so it's nice to have that balance so I don't feel guilty about my motorsport because you know it's such a privilege to be able to do rallying and racing so it's been good to kind of get out there advertise the motorsport side of the business um we have had North Wales Honda put across my Subaru because normally I compete in an Impreza and uh, that just confused people a little bit (laughs) my car was used for like the um world rally championship press release about two years ago and they did actually put um, Honda car driven by Jay Paveley and it's like this black impressive but it had North Wales Honda on the bonnet so we're here to talk to you about your amazing exploits with the Jaguar F-Type rallying that a car that you would probably never normally associate with a rally stage but before we we get to that part of your career let's start at the very beginning because I do like to use this podcast to talk to people like you, Jade, to hopefully inspire others to get into the sport as well. We need new young people coming into motorsport, desperately, really. And so anything we can do, to, I think, to inspire people by sharing stories of how others have managed it is brilliant. And you started really young, didn't you? Way back at the age of 15. So what? how does a teenage girl in North Wales get into motorsport? Well, do you know, I actually wasn't very young. I was competing against kids that have been competing since they were like five. So when I rocked up on the scene, it was like I was competing against kids that were just so, you know, their whole life was orientated to brown karting. You know, there's, it's just such an intense world, really. I do really miss karting, actually. So before I actually started competing, when I got my race license, my kart license at 14, 15, um, my first race was about a week after my 15th birthday. And um, the chassis that I had was called a Jade chassis, just by sheer coincidence, which was really cool. But before that, my dad had always rallied. So I just grew up just around cars. 
Um, my mum's absolutely petrified of speed, so she's never really got involved with it. Um, and I've got two brothers, but they're not that bothered about cars. So um, I think it's just something like I always like had a little mini motorbike and stuff, which was really good fun. Um, but yeah, karting, I started competing when I was 15 and it was the best training I think I could have had for any type of motorsport that I've done thereafter because it's such close racing and it's so intense and there's nothing like the smell of that two-stroke oil. It's the best thing ever. And I'll never forget that first race I did at Little Whistington where it was tipping it down because obviously it always tips down in the UK. And just there was that spray of water and that smell of two-stroke and it was just mad. And um, when I did it, the class that I was in, there was maybe like 25, 30 kids. It was just mad. Um, and it was just such a good training. And, you know, great for teaching your breaking points and apexes. And it was just such a nice social scene as well, which I think, you know, at that age when you're a teenager, it's you kind of find your feet, who you are, who you want to be. And being around motorsport, because it is so expensive, it gives you a good perspective on obviously money, costing, budgeting, um, and gives you a good kind of grounding on that. So, um, yeah, that's where it started. I don't want to waffle too much, so do tell me to stop because I just love it so much. <laughs> I get excited just talking about karting again. <laughs> well, the, the great thing about our podcast is we can talk for as long as we like. <laughs> I mean, I imagine you go to school in the weekdays and you're all excited about the motorsport that you've done over the weekend. I can imagine most of your friends found that quite tough to relate to. A little bit. It was, I kind of found some friends, I had great friends at school and then I had friends that were in karting and I remember I've, I've always been a little bit of a matchmaker so I remember like trying to take some my like, girly mates to karting so I can try and match them up with my karting pals but um, <laughs> but I don't know, it's just a different thing, I didn't really, I don't think it's any of my friends at school, there was one other guy who did karting um in my year at school but otherwise it was just a kind of separate thing and i think because i used to get super nervous and the lead up the week to the race i didn't really talk about it um so it was just like a different thing really i don't know it's, it was just like a different kind of lifestyle i had and i mean it was a bit in, like when we started you know going out and stuff when i was you know 17 18 there was a few times where there was like parties or birthdays and everyone having their 18th and i remember like going on a friday before a race that weekend and obviously you've got to like be aware like you can't really get drunk like your mates you're there you maybe have one or two and then you go home early so there's always that little bit of a compromise but i looking back now that was like the best thing you know having i was lucky to be able to balance a bit of both but um it kind of put me in good stead and if i didn't do the karting then i would have had that jump to car racing um so that was a big thing and going I didn't do karting for too many years I did it for maybe three years and then I had an overlap where I was given the opportunity to drive for Mazda and they needed it they being blunt they needed a female driver for their 24-hour race that they were doing and they had a, a um, Mazda Europe racing program for the endurance series in Brick Car they entered a few of those and um, I was the youngest person to compete in the 24-hour race in the UK at the time. So that was an amazing opportunity. But I had moved from single-geared kart junior TKM to gearbox karting in 125 KZ2 gearbox karts. And if I hadn't have done that jump, then they wouldn't have allowed me to race in the cars because I hadn't raced anything with gear changes. So I had you know, a clutch and six-speed gearbox on that cart and that then enabled me to have the skill set supposedly but i i passed my driving test on the tuesday drove to croft on the 
Wednesday or that evening and then was tested on Thursday, raced on Saturday. So that was a mad week. Wow. Mad. <laughs> I mean, if ever there was a demonstration of a natural talent, that has to be it because driving a car, there are so many more things to worry about than, you know, mechanically wise than you have on a car. But you obviously took to that as if it was just second nature. Well, it was the biggest difference. Well, the first time I drove by myself after I passed my driving license was around Croft Circuit. And I think when you've been karting you do get an element of being quite fearless when you get into a car there yeah you're quite right there's so many other things to take on board it's the weight transfer was the biggest thing for me and i think a lot of drivers when they come from karting that is something to consider if they go to saloon cars instead of open wheel and that obviously when you're breaking your fin the weight transfer go backwards forwards you know side to side when you're going around you know your tight corners that was the biggest thing for me to get my head round. um and obviously it's a different level. And obviously I was I was kind of competing with people of a similar age. I had to then integrate myself into a team with other drivers, which as you can imagine, it can get very competitive, especially if you're racing with drivers that are maybe very established, they've been there for a while. And I think, who's this young girl trying to wean herself into the team? But, you know, I've got, you have to take your, you know, your opportunities where you can, but it was, I loved just driving. I remember that first time driving down the, the back straight and it was, I've rallied there since. And uh, it was a great circuit to do my first kind of few laps around, really. You talk about this quite modestly, but you were the youngest person ever to compete in a 24-hour race anywhere in the world when you took on that. And for anyone who's not familiar with the Brick Car Endurance Race, I mean, it's as close as you get in the UK to Le Mans, basically. And it is run... I think it's September, isn't it? Um, I think it was September because yeah. it got it, the weather was no, but the weather was pretty poor. And that was my point. You know, the weather yeah. can be terrible: <laughs> fog, rain, <laughs> hail. <laughs> <a lot>. <laughs> you know, it was so. I did one of the, one of the stints that I did. I think I did three stints, and one of them that I did was three o'clock in the morning to six o'clock in the morning. I did sun um, sun sun going down, which of course is quite difficult because it's going from day to night. And I remember panicking about my visor. What kind of visor do I have? The one where it's obviously deflecting the sun coming into your visor or, do, or is it going to be too dark by the time when it goes dark to really be able to do anything? And then that second stint, 3am till 6, the heavens opened and it was foggy. And I remember I was driving this little MX-5 and for, for the Mazda team. So obviously the pressure's on because you're driving for a manufacturer. It was my second race ever that I'd done. And um, I was trying to go around the first corners. And then this is it Mosler just came straight past me. A Ferrari came straight past me and straight on, didn't even make it around the corner. And I was thinking, those guys must know what they're doing, surely by now. So <laughs> I've just got to keep on the, the track because honestly, you just couldn't see anything. It's your second ever race. You've only just passed your test. You know, it's September and you're in a little Mazda MX-5 for a works team on track against some absolute monster cars because there are such big closing speed differences between the different classes, aren't there? Absolutely crazy. Look, it's I don't even know if I really thought about it at the time. It's just one of those things I just got on and did. I think if you think about things too much, you can get a bit out. But yeah, it was the differences in the cars were crazy. And it was a great opportunity. I learned an awful lot, not only on track, but off track as well. But yeah, it was a bit mad, really, wasn't it? Whoever decided to put me in that car was probably a little bit touched or just wanted a great PR story. But, I, you know, I didn't go off. I didn't crash. I, you know, we got, I guess, these lap times. But dad used to put me out on slicks when it rained, when it was karting, when I was karting. 
So again, I absolutely hated my day at the time for doing that, but it was one of the best things I did because it put me in better stead when conditions did change. And when you compete in the UK, it's going to rain at some point, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. so that's circuit racing, but obviously you're known mainly for being a rally driver. So where did that sort of path and the junction in that path come from? And why did you end up going towards rallying rather than more circuit racing? Well, um, so there's a, I don't want to say misconception, a lot of people think I'm Welsh because I've been living in Wales for such a long time now, but originally I was from the Midlands and hence why I went to all the local kart circuits. I was very, you know, lucky. I lived right in the middle where Sheddington, Risington, Wilton Mill was. Um, but then when I got to 19, um, my dad decided to up our family and relocate to North Wales in Llanidno. That's where I took over the, the dealership. And um, yeah, it just seemed like the right thing to do. When you're in Wales, you rally, don't you? You'd, we lived right next to the Great Orme, which was used as one of the stages for Wales Rally GB. And Dad had always come from a, a rallying background. He thought the racing scene would be better to get me into just simply from a career perspective, really, when I showed interest in, in racing. Um, but then, you know, through one thing or the other, he took over or co-managed a, a motorsport business and uh, his business partner rallied dad had never got rid of his evo 3 he sold one of his porsches which we saw in the autosport auctions which was up for like way over a hundred thousand and he was literally almost crying but he sold that porsche for to get this evo 3 mitsubishi and he's always said he's going to sell it and he never has and he's had it for years so he's always had that around so i guess when i did do my first rally when i was 19 it just seemed like quite a natural thing to do. And although it was very weird having to learn how to listen to a co-driver, that was weird because obviously when you're, when you're racing, I was on the Motorsport UK Academy and one of the things they encourage you to do is to talk to yourself and to kind of encourage yourself and whatever. So when I had to get into a rally car and listen to someone to give me pace notes, it was like, okay, I'm going to gonna have to shut up here and just listen <laughs> to what someone's saying. Um, but it just felt like I was at home. It just it felt quite a natural thing to do. And um, I just love it. I just, it was one of the best things to do. And I think having done the racing, you get an idea of where you need to be. And yet, fair enough, it's not a circuit. But I did do a circuit championship in rallying a couple of years after. But you at least get an idea of where to position the car, breaking points, so on and so forth, really. But yeah, rallying is, yeah absolutely love now it's interesting that you've come from a karting background into rallying as well because that gives you probably a slightly different set of skills and experiences on car control as well from the traditional rally route in from grass auto testing and things like that yeah well i did um just to keep my hand in and just to keep my fitness up really i did a kart test um I think we went to Hooton Park, was it last year? I don't think it was last year because I don't think we could because of COVID, but the year before. Um, and the team that were running me just said, you're driving like a rally driver, you need to stop trying to slide it. And whenever I do a rally, if someone's watching, they're like, you're driving like a racing driver. So I'm kind of caught, my styles are really mixed with both approaches, um, which can be um, a real help or a hindrance depending on the type of race, really. Um, so, yeah, I think, as I said, karting is the best way to just get stuck in and learn those basics so you're turning in too late on a rally stage and you're turning too early on a race circuit (laughs) oh don't honestly always always those apex is always turning too early too late but it's yeah it's 
I just got to take it as my skill sets and, you know, just get on with it because everyone always knows better when they're watching you. So yeah. then, yeah, so it's good just to get on with your own style of driving, really. Well, of course, there is the Tarmac Rally Championship, which I suspect suits your talents absolutely perfectly because you have got that hybrid mix of both disciplines. So talk us through the journey then from getting into rallying and starting those first stages to competing in the Subaru that you've got now got. Yeah, so the Subaru I've had literally from the beginning, really. I did one rally in a little Fiesta, which didn't work properly, but it was a good experience um, in just an airfield in Harleth, and that's um, near North Wales, so it wasn't too far away from where we moved to. And that was a big open airfield, which totally threw me because there was so much space, and I was just so used to going around a circuit where it's very obvious where you've got to go. So obviously that made me tune into the Navigator a lot quicker um, because it was just like, whoa, which way do I go? Um, And then... I did a couple of um, circuit rallies at Anglesey Race Circuit. That's definitely one of my favourite circuits. Um, it's just got so much to it. Um, and I, remember, I think the karting came into play when I overtook two cars. There was a split and I went down the middle of two cars, <laughs> so, which was good fun. Um, and then I did a couple more circuit events. And then I did the Motorsport News Circuit Rally Championship again, which is... Yeah, I had to use both skill sets, which was really good. And I had been to a couple of the the circuits as well. So when we went to Croft and did one or, you know, I'd been there before at least. So I had some reference points. But again, they put chicanes in. And so you can't, when there's dangers of rallying, you can know a little bit. And a little bit of knowledge can be a bit dangerous because you can't always think that you know more than the navigator. The navigator knows where they're going. You can't blank them out and think you know where you're going. Otherwise, you're going to end up in a right tangle. It's a um, phenomenal series, that, isn't it? Because they travel up and down the country through all those legendary heritage race circuits and um, Goodwood is one of the stages for example and you can see the rally cars banging down the pit lane and then turning through a chicane and down the main straight and yeah it's incredible to see rally cars using bits of the race circuit that you don't normally see being used. Yeah it's it's cool it's different it's good for the circuits to optimize their facilities really but Circuits are great, but I must say I really enjoyed when I started doing the proper stage rallies and doing some stages near the Brecon Beacons called the Epant Ranges, which a lot of the, you know, you have to do them really. And that was great because they're so fast and flowing and the pace lights come out quite quickly. It's a different kind, I think it's a different kind of skill set. So having that mix of circuit, which is great fun, love doing it. I really do like being in the open road and I'm really looking forward to hopefully doing some of the closed road rallies later on in the year if they're not cancelled, fingers crossed they've started doing those again but that's if i hadn't done rallying then i wouldn't have driven the jaguar rally cars so that oh, was yes. a phone call that i had how did that all come about this is not a car you would associate with rallying so how did that project all start so i got a phone call when i was in the dealership on the tuesday saying hi is you know is that jane i was like yeah oh hi how can i help you think it was a customer um and they're like hi um, this is this is dougie i'm part of the uh, jaguar um organization want to see if you could possibly do some driving for us on friday at walter's arena in an f-type rally car and obviously i was like um yeah definitely <laughs> so i got the day off on the friday drove down um to walter's arena and they were doing a bit of filming and setup and i didn't actually I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I didn't actually drive the car until the Saturday when we were showing the journalists around the car. So I managed to drive the car like a, maybe like once or twice before they got in the car as well. So it was a bit of throwing at the deep end, but um, that was my first drive with it. And we had two journalists got in the car with me and I drove them, they drove me. 
um, which is a brilliant opportunity. I think when I saw the car, I was like, wow, that is just beautiful. It's so different from anything else you see. Um, and I think the general joke was, yeah, you're going to get wet or muddy because after the um, the test at um, Waters Arena in South Wales, we they invited me back um, in the January to do some more work with them at Fenend. And again, had lots of journalists showing them around the car, driving them, teaching them how to drive it. And this car was, again, so unique. Obviously, you got muddy when you went through the puddles, and that was just part of the parcel. And luckily, I wear glasses when I drive, so it didn't go into my eyes. But um, it's it's great. They, they did such... The changes that they did, they changed the, the springs and dampers, they changed the brakes um, to AP brakes, uh, changed the door handle, the door cards. They tried to make it a bit lighter, obviously put a cage in it. Um, put your race seat in and your six-point harness. Um, so they did so much to the car to make it almost ready for you know competition or FIA homologated. But then they still had the heated steering wheel. Oh, <laughs> which really? <was> absolute <laughs> wonder. <laughs> and they still had like the pop-up screen, <laughs> um, which was disabled, but it still came up and lights and the fans still moved. And it had a lot of the kind of luxury in. So it was definitely the most luxurious rally car I will ever drive, I think, in my life. But it was... It was the rear-wheel drive. It was a 300 PS engine. Um, it was still quite heavy. That was one thing. So it was quite a lot to kind of throw around. But it was brilliant to drive. It was just so unique. And then I got a call after a couple of times doing, you know, showing the journalists around, driving them around um, from the chap who invited me to drive for them and said, do you want to come and drive at Goodwood this year? And oh my God, yes, definitely. So I drove around the rally stage. Um, it was tipping it down the Sunday, but by 12 o'clock, I'd already gone around eight times. I just absolutely could not get enough of it. That stage is treacherous at the best of times, but it was just so fun to drive. And you had your hydraulic handbrake, which was great. I had to put the seat a bit further back because I kept hitting the seat and I couldn't pull it if my seat was too far forward because it hit it. Yeah, so I, I remember seeing that actually when the car was out <laughs> circulating around the, the press and the shows that, you know, like you described, the, the cockpit kind of looked as you'd expect an F-type cockpit to look. You had those carbon fibre bucket seats in there, didn't you? And, uh, and then basically just next to your sort of clutch leg as i would call it this massive stick for your hydraulic handbrake just sort of protruded out of the floor and i did look at it and think i wonder if that gets in the way clearly it did well it was just because i'm not not tall so i had to keep on the seat forward and which normally to be fair you wouldn't do you'd have your seat bolted in but um i pulled it forward and i thought this handbrake's not working like, i wonder what that's wrong and then i got in and i thought oh my god that's so stupid like it's just because i'm being too short and pulled the seat too far forward <laughs> it was blocking the actual movement so um i had to just move back and put some cushions behind me which is quite normal <laughs> a lot of electrics in that car as well presumably they were all turned off were they a lot of the systems were turned off, um, like they disabled the ABS and DSC and so on, but there was, a, they hadn't taken out the wiring, for instance, and things like that, which is totally fine. Obviously, it was, it was a beautiful, wonderful product for what it is, but they, they disabled a lot of those kind of safety features. Obviously, you don't want things kicking in when you're trying to get a car to slide in a certain way or to break in a certain way. Um, that just, you know, obviously messes things up and you're having to work twice as hard to override things. But um yeah, there's still quite a lot of, as I said, luxury in there, like the leather look and the hand stitching, and it's just beautiful. 
I mean, you have to ask the question, why? <laughs> why did they do it? <laughs> there was a lot of history behind it, which again, I really like because I'm a bit of a history nerd, but um, you touched on it at the beginning of the podcast. You said you wouldn't normally think about Jaguar with rallying, but actually Ian Appleyard won um, consecutively three years in a row, um, one of the Alpine rallies, I believe. So that was kind of homage just to say, look, we have got this rallying heritage, kept it as a convertible because they wanted to keep it as close as possible that kind of era really so it was just uh, an anniversary model or, or you know car there was only two of them made as well so yeah no pressure of driving them but yeah there's just the two um but i thought it was, it was a really nice to have that a kind of section of what you know they were trying to push rallying and that side of motorsport because it does get overlooked somewhat which is you know lots of reasons for that but it's all very much about the racing and yes jaguar did great in le mans and so on and so forth but it was really nice to have that nod to to rallying it kind of got retired, didn't it, in 2019. Um, what was your favourite moment with that F-Type over the time that you were driving it? Well, we were really lucky again. I did um, a demonstrator run through one of the stages at Welsh IGB on the Colin Basie front, which was the last time that it went out. And I remember I outbroke myself just a tiny weeny bit going to the last hairpin of that. And I was just thinking, don't mess it up now. <laughs> but I didn't. I got it round and it looked good and it sounded good because that car, to be fair, sounded great, especially through the trees and it. it Goodwood. Um, that was really cool because it was literally down the road from where I'd been living for the last however many years. And, you know, it was, you know, quite a sentimental thing. But I think probably Goodwood just because it was yeah. just so different from everyone else. And it was just nice to thrash about a car and just drive something a bit different. And, you know, Jaguar and Goodwood, is, you know, they go back a long way. So it was nice to, to do that. I think that's possibly. That that driving that car with someone screaming down your intercom, you know, that they were having a great time. And I, I did um some driving with a chef, Gareth Ford, on the program um with James Martin. I did a program yeah, with them yeah. just literally after Goodwood. I had to keep it pristine that car because we were filming on the Tuesday um to go on to the program for ITV. And having him in the car next to me, and he was a big guy. He was like six foot something, obviously a chef, so likes his food, <laughs> quite a big guy. And so the car was kind of like tilted on one side <laughs> and I was trying to get the car to jump. And I did it and I made, made it stop afterwards as well, which was an achievement. But um, that was possibly going in the air and, and me kind of surprising myself that I managed to get the air and then hearing him through the intercoms kind of going, ooh, as it happened. <laughs> That was possibly my favourite moment. For things like that, you get to sort of have fun with it, don't you? And actually enjoy driving, show off a bit, have a bit of a laugh. And you hear just how other people's reaction to driving really is. That's got to be quite a buzz. Oh, yeah, definitely. Just people enjoying it. In a car like that, you're not going to not enjoy it. It's just such a different experience, as said. Sitting in a passenger seat in a rally car is one thing, but then sitting in a rally car with no roof on, that's quite different. So... You know, you're feeling and seeing all the elements and, you know, you're getting splashed in the face, your suit's getting dirty. And yeah, it was just a great experience for so many people who were, you know, got to experience that. And I've got to thank Jaguar massively because what an amazing opportunity that was. Like having that phone call on that Tuesday a couple of years ago now, it was just a brilliant, brilliant thing. And it's given me more, even more confidence going forward. You know, that's another um, great experience that I've had, another manufacturer that I've worked for and it's been successful. So, you know, having that confidence behind me has been really fantastic and they were lovely people well uh, since you've now explained 
how much you enjoy driving with people in the passenger seat having a good time and we're recording for the podcast so all of our listeners in the Jaguar community across the world are listening to this I'm going to ask you something and I hope you're going to say yes and promise that you'll do it will you come if we can sort this out via this podcast that we bring your old f-type to Castle Coombe or one of the JC track days will you come and drive it and take some of our members round how about that for oh yeah definitely I don't even need to wait for you to finish definitely I'd <laughs> love to do that that would be absolutely amazing yeah great to get back behind the wheel of that car well we'll have to put some uh, persuasive emails into Tony Merigold and our friends at Jaguar Daimler Heritage Trust to see if we can get that car out of retirement otherwise uh, we'll be asking for donations from the membership uh, to see if anyone's got an F-type they'd like to turn into a rally car <laughs> or perhaps an XJS even something really unusual that we could rally round one of our track days in the JC and bring you along Jade show off your skills to our members I think that'd be a good day wouldn't it that'd be great and I was also thinking as well I'd may have mentioned this to you before but if you're getting married next year so that'll be a perfect wedding car (laughs) yes now this would be a wedding of the year wouldn't it really because i could just see you arriving at the church sideways (laughs) veil flapping in the air (laughs) and and there's no way you would let anyone else drive it either of course (laughs) no i'm driving myself to church a hundred percent no no i definitely and i think that's just the perfect car for it and it sounds amazing so yeah, definitely. I'd and love to. It's already dressed in white, so it's all ready to go. Yeah, I have to get my. I might have to get like a Jaguar kind of look with the dress or something in sequence. I don't know, kind of tie it all in and maybe wear red shoes. <laughs> Well, I happen to know that uh, the guys in the offices at uh, JDHT, they do listen to this podcast. They'll be listening now. So uh, we've got the request in, guys. We've got the Jaguar F-Type and Jade along to one of our track days. And also, Jade needs a car back for a wedding, pretty please. So uh, let's, let's see if we can make that happen. And you'll have to come back on and tell us if all of these things happen. I'm sure they will. <laughs> I remember the iconic pictures that came out of that highlight for you, which was Colwyn Bay. They put the car in front of the the sign that's on the beach there at Colwyn Bay. There you had this F-Type with the big rally spots grafted onto the front nose cone, the roll cage, the big hydraulic handbrake up in the air. And yeah, if ever there was a fitting tribute to Ian Appleyard, Nob 120, and of course all of the other rallying exploits of Jaguar in its history, that was the car for it. And I remember being at Goodwood at the Festival of Speed Jade and they referred to you as their resident rally driver for Jaguar. I wondered if you'd do us the honour of being our resident rally driver for the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, what do you think? That sounds like an honour. Thank you so much. (laughs) I'd love to be the resident rally driver. Thank you. Well, you know, I did want to try and use this podcast to hopefully inspire some people to get into motorsport. Words of advice then, if someone's listening to this perhaps another teenage girl in north wales who is on the edge of stardom and greatness like you what would you say to someone how do they get started perhaps even if they don't have motorsport in the family well the great thing about motorsport you don't just have to be a driver there's so many other ways to get involved there's marshalling there's organizing there's navigating there's mechanics the world is open to you you know there's so many different avenues you can take me wanting to drive was excellent, but also I've always made sure that I've got a, a good mechanical knowledge. And motorsport, I won't dress up too much. Motorsport can be very, very challenging like any sport. You've got to really commit yourself to it. And funding wise, it's very difficult. I'm searching for sponsors for my season for this year and next year. Looking for investment is really, really tough. 
Um, and if you don't get it, it may mean you, you don't compete. But if you plan and you push and you put yourself out there and be confident, then there's no reason why you can't do it. Just try and plan out as much as you possibly can. Look at the different events that you could get involved with. Maybe learn a bit more about the avenue of motorsport that you want to take because it's not just rallying or racing. There's autocross, there's um, time trials. Obviously, there's motocross with two wheels and so on and so forth. But there's so many different ways to get involved. And do your homework. Go and watch and see how you like it and how you can get involved. But um, one thing I would say, don't let yourself hold yourself back if that makes sense so don't put up any you know I can't do this or I don't belong there you know you, everyone belongs in motorsport it's for something for everybody there's so many different types of people from different walks of life getting involved with it and everyone is welcome there's no reason why you shouldn't get involved and I think for me doing championships and getting results under my belt was the best thing for me winning you know, the, the Welsh Tarmac Championship, the Junior Championship title was the best thing for me because it proved to myself that I could do it. But just because you haven't quite got there doesn't mean you haven't. Go out there and do your absolute best and just most of all, enjoy it because that's the main thing. That's why we all do it. And that's why we love engines and the sound of it and, and competing. Yeah. Well, uh, I, no doubt the pandemic hasn't helped getting sponsorship um, which was already tough before. It hasn't helped getting sponsorship for racing uh, going forward. I think probably another bit of advice is do a business degree because sometimes it can feel <laughs> that the business side of stuff outweighs the racing side, doesn't it? Um, and I know that's that's ever going to be ever more present as we go in the uh, post-COVID world. But you raise a good point. You know, it's um, the only sport really in the world on a world level where sportsmen and sportswomen compete shoulder to shoulder. And someone said to me once, no one cares what gender you are once the helmet's on. And that really is true of motorsport now, isn't it? It has changed an awful lot. A hundred percent, especially when you're in a car, like people can't see you. You're just there to do your thing. It was a bit more obvious in karting because I had a bright pink helmet, which might as well have a target <laughs> room in the back of my head. But um, really, when you've got the helmet on, you can't see. And really, there is no barrier with that. I've not had luck. I've been, I don't know if I've been lucky or if it's just one of those things. Like I've never come across any person in motorsport say no you can't do that because you're a girl absolutely no way and if someone said that then they need a real serious hard look at themselves there's nothing that can stop you from competing this th i've had more trouble working in a, a car dealership with people not thinking that i could drive or thinking i was a receptionist as opposed to a salesperson um, that's the only time that I found those obstacles. Um, but it's made me want to do better in motorsport even more. So I would just use it to drive you. And yeah, don't put up those barriers. Just There's no reason why being female makes you any less capable a driver. And there's so many, you, you just approach it slightly differently. I would say that, you know, with my partner, Ross, having the Forest Experience Rally School, when you go there on a tuition day, girls tend to take it a slightly different way to boys if i'm okay to say that blokes tend to just pile in there and then sort it out when they get to there whereas girls can i'm not saying this for everybody but tend to look at it learn take it and then get faster and faster throughout the day and listen you know what i mean though so yeah girls tend to kind of build themselves up to it as guys can just like pile in but um yeah so there's diff different ways of going about it just go for it if that's what you love and there's nothing better than driving down the back straight somewhere flat out and you're on the right edge of you know the grip and the and you can just hear everything and you've really tuned into what you're doing because you just forget everything else. It's just so addictive. 
our resident rally driver now within the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, I have to ask you, apart from that amazing accolade that you've now received, uh, what's new for <laughs> you? What's next? So this year, get some sponsors, get some investment. And my plan is to do some of the closed road rallies in Wales and England this year. Um, fingers crossed they go ahead. If not, I'm going to use this year just to test, get myself back up to speed, get my car right, ready to compete again. Um, and then next year, hopefully do a championship. And I want to get a couple more titles into my belt, if I can, if not the following year. But I just need to make it a long-term you know, commitment. And I just can't wait to get behind the wheel again. So there's a number of options, just depends with COVID and what can and does go ahead. But um, now I'm going to do this amazing event at Castle Coombe, driving the F-Type rally car again. <laughs> so, oh, I'm at Goodwood again this year as well. Which oh, is excellent. Good. Yeah. Well, we'll look forward to seeing seeing you there and seeing you at Jag Enthusiast Club events in the future. Now, you are dubbed our resident rally driver. And we, we are all behind you, Jade. We are going to keep up to date with you. And hopefully you'll come back on the podcast perhaps later in the year and tell us how your season went and the latest for you. And uh, as I say, let's hope to see you out at one of our track day events, giving some people some thrilling rides. But uh, for now, Jade Pavey, thanks for joining us. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Tom's Jaguar Racing Diary. Sharing the knowledge, drama and innovation from behind the scenes of the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club Race Championship. Well, we're finally getting ready to get back out on track. So um, we over the Easter weekend, um, we were up at Goodwood with Matthew in his XJR6. Um, so this is the, as I explained, the sister car to to my vehicle, and is one that's going to be um, raced back in the championship, which is great. So it hasn't raced for a couple of years. Um, so we've gone right the way back through the vehicle, and uh, Matthew did some track days in it last year. So we, we've made quite a few improvements. So on Saturday we were up at Goodwood, um, which was great to be honest with you Matthew was back out in the, top, uh, the car for the first time um, we made quite a few improvements to that one over the winter um, we've added a new exhaust system um, we've also upgraded the management system so we're running a similar ECU setup to what's on my XJR6 now the reason for that is is just purely so we can we can gain data as I've always said um, a lot of the problems with my car in the past and improvements have all been based off some of this uh, data that we've been able to pick up from these modern ECU so we've added that to the car and a new exhaust system and then just some uh, as always we're always chasing weight we've uh, changed the battery setup and moved a few things around in the car to call to wait it up for Matthew and it's going to be his first season back out racing so um, he's did, did his odds last year um, and he is going to be out at Silverstone so um, he's got plenty of other track days lined up but it was great to, to see that car back out on track and to be honest with you it was it was pretty well faultless so it was absolutely great so he's now taking the car back I think he's getting some new graphics done on the car and just getting a few little bits tidied up ready and he's got a few more track days um, before we go racing which we'll document at some time now um, my XJR6, as I said in the last episode, we've been really busy with that over the winter and we've redesigned the cooling system for the car in the hope that we can improve these little uh, cooling issues we had last year. 
Um, as always, we're in a quest to find or to get rid of as much weight as possible out the car. And um, as we've said in the past, my car is at a stage where it is unfortunately very hard to find any more weight. So it's all minimal amounts of weight that we're able to find now. So we have carried on with that over the winter. And we, I think we found another 25 kilograms, which was all in kind of changing materials. So instead of using steel bolts, we've used different materials where we can, moved some of the seat rails to aluminium rather than steel. and and just small improvements really nothing major so that's given us um like i said a much better weight setup for the car now that does bring us under weight limit so we have to be 1375 with me in it um but ultimately is what you always try to do when you're corner weighting his car is to put the weight where you want it we've obviously never been able to achieve this because the car's always been naturally heavier so we've always sacrificed a bit of the weight and just added the weight where we need it and run the car overweight but we are now managing to get underweight which is massively beneficial for us with tire um how a tire will last because there's less weight on the tire so you're pushing less heat and a whole host of things so we've really concentrated on that and um, obviously redesigned this this uh, intercooler and radiator setup so I tested the car yesterday um, which was the first time of me driving the car again which was uh, was a little bit interesting there was uh, it come back fairly quickly luckily but I was a little bit rusty I must admit um, but it was absolutely brilliant to get the car back out on the track for the first time and to be honest with you it went absolutely brilliantly it was one of the best test sessions we've had in the car for a long long time we just had a, a lot of time to to run through um, different setups the track day was quite quiet the test day sorry um, so we we're able to try a lot of different setups the car felt so much better with 25 kilograms it it doesn't sound a lot but when you drive it it feels so much more nimble um, which which was great one, one of the, the areas that we've we've lost weight from um, is we've changed over the braking system um, we do a lot of work with Tarox, um, which are based in Italy, and we've been able to save a couple of kilograms um, on the front and about four kilograms on the rear just in um, with the, the disc and the caliper arrangement. Now, because that's unsprung weight, that's massively different, as I explained before, with when we change the wheels. So it, it's definitely notable when you're turning it into a tight chicane or, or something like that you can really feel how how much quicker the car responds to your driver input so that's a massive positive um, from my point of view and uh, and and going back to the engine temperatures that again they were absolutely perfect it's still early days um, because we did find that we did have different issues at different tracks but having said that the temperatures were kind of 15 to 20 degrees cooler than what they were last year that's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com and you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages don't forget you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the join today button on the top right hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits plus the fantastic glossy 130 page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC this is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com